we weren't given this in our, at least 20 years ago, in the CFE curriculum. You were just given the tools to take out the toolbox, fix the problem, and then move on. Whereas now we're starting to identify it's not just, you need some good tools in the toolbox. I absolutely do not discount that. But you also need to understand people. Like it or not, you, me, and everyone else, we all have a relationship with money. And for the most part, it's a complicated one. My name's Sean Maslick. Welcome to the Most Hated F Word podcast. As a certified financial planner, I want to take you on a journey as we throw out the technical finance books and shift our focus towards our minds, our money, and what matters most. If you're looking to improve your relationship with money and build true wealth, you're in the right spot. Finances does not need to be the most hated F word. Welcome back to the Most Hated F Word Podcast. I am your host, Sean Maslick, and I am delighted you are here with us for another fascinating conversation. For all the returning listeners, welcome back. For the new listeners, welcome. Today, we are talking about a humanistic approach to our relationships with money, using evidence and experience. And our guest is Dr. Mary Bell Carlson. Before we get into the show, if you have enjoyed the podcast, I would really appreciate it if you could head over to Apple Podcasts to leave a review. Those reviews definitely do help bring wonderful guests on like Dr. Mary Bell Carlson. Dr. Carlson is a financial behavior expert, a renowned speaker and storyteller. With a diverse background, including a PhD in financial planning with a focus specifically on financial therapy, she also has a CFP, Certified Financial Planning Designation, and an AFC, an Accredited Financial Counselor, and over 15 years experience as a financial counselor in various settings. Mary's work has impacted countless individuals and families in improving their financial well-being. She's now the founder and president of Financial Behavior Keynote Group, which offers wonderful presentations, workshops, and continuing education programs for financial professionals that seeks to create positive financial behavior change. Mary has been gracious enough to offer the listeners a discount of 10% for anyone looking for CE credits. You can head over to the website to get the discount code. You'll see Mary offers a very thought-provoking approach to behavior change when it comes to our money, and that definitely comes through in our conversation today. In our conversation, we dive into the profound impacts of taking this humanistic approach to dealing with our money. Dr. Carlson shares insights on how money's influence extends beyond the mere dollars and cents in her bank account. She emphasizes during this conversation the importance of fostering financial trust, building financial agency, and recognizing the psychological aspects of money to create true financial confidence. I really appreciate Dr. Carlson's approach as she really blends the evidence-based research and also practical experience to really provide us, the listeners, with a wonderful lens in which we can view financial change. Of course, it's really important that we look at evidence-based research when we are talking about financial change, but bringing in the experience side really helps to make this applicable for all of us. I encourage everyone to check out Dr. Mary Bell's work online. All the links are on the website at themosthatedfword.com. You'll see links to the CE credit course that I mentioned, and there's a 10% discount code you will see on the website. You can also find a link to her book on the show notes as well. And now a quick little note before we get into the show. If you're interested in having your own money story song, yes, you heard me correctly, your own money story song, then head over to financialanthem.com and see all the information on how you can get your own money story song. And now I hope you enjoy this fascinating conversation with Dr. Mary Bell Carlson. Mary, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. I'm excited to have you. I think the 
wealth of your experience will land well with our audience and myself. I can't stop thinking about kids. We were just having a good conversation about <laughs> kids and how we've fully mastered balancing life and kids. I'm joking. We said it was we're making juggling. it a mess of it. Yeah. <laughs> juggling the mess. <laughs> but maybe the beauty is within the mess. Oh, it is. Absolutely. 100%. So you have a wide-ranging background. And perhaps speaking of kids, a good place to start would be talking about dates. We've all <laughs> Okay. <laughs> we've all been on dates. Some of them have been great, some have been fantastic, some are awkward. But I understand with your now second or sorry, your now husband on your second date, you decided to talk to him about money. I'm curious why did you decide to talk to him about money and what was his response like? Oh, Sean, that is quite the question to lead with. And I'm only chuckling because I have to take you a little pre, pre-date that, okay? So I was in my mid-30s before I met and married my husband. So I had been on a lot of dates at that point and learned a, and a lot of them were on that poor end, had some good ones. But I was pretty much at this point going... I'm going to be single for the rest of my life and I'm done. I also, in the meantime, had a, a almost a 15-year career and done a ton of things. So I had worked for the Financial Planning Association as a lobbyist. I'd worked for a couple of firms in wealth management. I'd worked for the Pentagon. I'd worked for Fort Riley, Kansas and helped soldiers. I got my PhD. I mean, there was just a lot that happened in that decade, a uh, decade and a half before I met him. So by the time I met my husband, so we'll get to that point, I talked about money a lot and it is not a weird thing to talk about for me. Okay. I went into this thinking this is a very normal thing. And literally on our second date, mind you, he lived in Arizona. I lived in Washington, DC. I had met at a conference and hit it off. And then we went back and I ended up just saying, Hey, let's talk about money. Let's talk about your finances. Little did I know I just walked into quicksand (laughs) Because he grew up, and I think I want to start here because it is a really important thing to start with, is his money history is very different than the one I grew up with. I grew up in a very, I would say, middle income. We were not rich by any means. But my parents, I remember their first Christmas, they said they traded a case of corn and a case of green beans. So that also shows you we were not rich, but we weren't starving. I never remember coming home and not having food on the table. We always had a roof over our head. We always had the necessities of life, right? I was the oldest of six kids, so it didn't go far, but it was enough. Switching dialogues, my husband grew up with his mom for the first few years of his life and then met his dad later in life, and eventually his dad got custody of him, but grew up without a two-parent household. Uh, He remembers being homeless. He remembers not eating. He remembers he and his dad, he said, go into the store with $5 to their name, and his dad would say, son, this is all we have to eat for the entire week. So he was an only child, a very different from what I grew up with the six, but he said, that's all we have to eat for this week. And so Josh was never a person that would get to the front of the store and be that kid to grab stuff off the shelf and scream and throw a fit that I want, because he knew from a very early age that they did not have. And so I knew none of this. And I just asked the question, let's talk about money, right? Thinking, This is totally normal. And he shut down. He comes from a therapy background. He's got a master's in clinical mental health and is a psychologist by training and had worked through a lot of things, but had never touched money. Money was the one subject that was taboo for him and stayed far away. And so when I asked that question and when I started peeling back the layers of some of the debt and some of the other things he was carrying there was a lot of shame. There was a lot of vulnerability. There was a lot of embarrassment. And it became, it was really interesting. Like we obviously stayed together. (laughs) Like it didn't totally decimate the whole conversation and relationship, but it was a really good learning lesson for me and for him. But I think for me, it really helped me understand not everybody's comfortable with this. Not everybody wants to talk about this. And there are reasons why this is a really hard topic for some people to talk about. With that, we were able to talk through it. In my world, there was very a lot of student loan debt, six-figure student loan debt. There was a lot of credit card debt. There were things that I didn't carry and I didn't have. So it was going to be really hard to reconcile those two coming together in what now led to a marriage. So we spent a lot of hours, a lot of days, a lot of years, in fact, 
talking about that and still do 10 years into our marriage now, we still take the time to talk and communicate about these because we look at things in very different lights. And it's important that we come together and work on it and that I'm sensitive. I think that's one thing that I, as a financial planner in this background, I just kind of ramrodded, right? Like, because I'm comfortable with it, I assume other people are comfortable with it. And I just start talking about it. And for him, it's not something that he doesn't appreciate it when 11 o'clock at night, we're in bed and I'm like, oh yeah, did we pay that credit? Because it stresses him out. And then he doesn't sleep the rest of the night. Whereas me, I go like roll over and go right back to sleep. And so I have learned that there are certain triggering things that I need to be careful of to not talk about. And he's asked, please, when we're in our room talking and getting ready for bed, that is not the time to bring up money because it's not going to help me sleep. And so I think those are some perspectives that I have learned in my marriage and from that second date of bringing up money of how to be really sensitive and really careful on these conversations, whether it be with a spouse, a partner, a child, a grandparent, a parent, or even a client. If you're a financial advisor and you're really comfortable with someone, you may be okay to talk about it, but be careful of what you're walking into. There can be some very triggering things for you. And then know, learn along the way how to be more cautious and ask questions. And I think that may have been my saving grace with my husband as I started to ask more questions than I made statements. And as I asked those questions, I began to understand him and his story better and how he works. I will tell you there's an upside. I, I don't want to end on a sour note. I want to say there are some amazing things that he learned from those really hard years. I can send this man to Costco <laughs> with a list and he sticks to it. Like I, I do not have that same gene or ability. I will grab everything on the shelf and walk out a thousand dollars later and be like, I don't know where it went. Whereas if it is on the list and only if I don't put it on the list, he will not get it. Even if he knows we usually get it, he will not get it. And if he knows what the budget is, if I say, hey, we got $300, then he sticks to it to the penny. <laughs> I mean, it's amazing. So I think that there are some good things. We always hash out the negative side, but I think there's some really good things. And so you can tell which of the two of us in our family goes to Costco. It is not me. <laughs> and so I'm always really impressed with some of the ways that he's been able to just stick to things that that I really struggle with. And he's been able to be like, oh, it's not that big of a deal to me. Wow, thank you. So many different areas we can go. But I, I just need to ask, <laughs> yeah. I live in Canada. In, in the US, do they have rotisserie chickens at Costco? They still have rotisserie chickens. Can people go to Costco in the States without getting rotisserie chicken? My husband can. Yeah. I cannot. But he can, if it is, if I literally don't put it on the list, he will walk out of that place without a rotisserie chicken. I know, which is tragic, but he has, you know, I have to go back, Sean. One thing that I remember him telling me at our wedding, and I hope this isn't too sentimental, but it just, he said to me, you know what? I'm never going to be a rich man, but I will give you all the love oh. that I can give. And he has lived true to that to this day. And I've loved to see that because there are so many other things we can get from one another in our relationships, we can give. You go back and you think of the gifting experience, right? Some people like gifts, some people like time, some people like physical touch. In this world, it's not just money that we can give. A lot of times, that's not what our, our kids are wanting or our spouse is wanting, it's us. And so my husband's actually really good at giving the gift of time. He's really good about giving the gift of attention. And I think that was something that I just, I don't know, I hadn't really ever thought about. I guess I assume people give that gift, but it's been interesting as, that, as time's gone on, I realized what a gift that is to give people. It's not just handing them a check or trying to fix a problem or whatever the financial situation may be, but really giving other gifts that matter to you whether they be physical or tangible or not. Mm. You have mentioned 10 years together. <laughs> such admiration you have year. towards him. And uh, I think that's, <laughs> I think it's really interesting about going back to that second date where you blindly at the time asked about money, but it makes me think of lots of your work centers around the psychology of money or the psychological factors of money. And I want to get your thoughts on, I think at times we can, go into a coupleship or partnership, whatever it looks like with money. And we don't ask that question. Not all of us are married where we ask it on the first or second date. <laughs> and I just want to talk 
about what you have seen through research or your experience working with the military. What can happen if we just keep those conversations on the surface level where we're just talking about the actual budget as opposed to getting into those deeper, more meaningful aspects of our childhood experiences with money and so forth? So I guess the question is, is what benefits do we get or can we get, if any at all, by diving deeper into the stories behind the dollars and cents? Sure. And let me start it off with, it depends on who you're talking to, right? I'm going to share more intimate things with my husband about money and my own struggles than I am with really anyone else. I may share more with my financial advisor on that topic than I would if the advisor asked. But those are going to be some people that I have trusted relationships with. I, by the way, just in case you you meet me, I do not ask that to people that I just meet. Well, let's talk about money, okay? So you don't have to worry if you ever see me at a conference or around that I'm going to come and bombard you with that question. And so I think that's part of it too, is being aware of who you're around and how that trust. Trust isn't a really important thing in relationships, right? Uh, in fact, let me kind of go a little psycho- psychology psychological (laughs) on you. There was a guy back in the 1950s, well, actually a wonderful researcher that had spent decades in this field, but his name is Carl Rogers. And he uh, admitted something called person-centered therapy. He spent years researching this. And his biggest outcome was the relationship between a therapist and the client is the biggest indicator of change. So if a therapist wants their client to change, the way to help the client change is not give them better advice, is not give them fancier spreadsheets, is not giving them, I don't know, more time, whatever. It's enhancing that relationship between you and your client. And I would argue that is true for financial advisors as well. If you want to see your client change, what can you do? Improve that relationship. And how can you strengthen that relationship? Sure, some people give gifts and I mean, that all can be nice. But trust is the gift that you can give to your client. And trust means I share something with you and I also know that it is in a safe place and you're not going to go reshare that with other people or bring it up at an embarrassing moment. So keeping in mind that the stuff that we sometimes get, whether as a friend or a spouse or a financial advisor, some of that is very delicate. And I think that we need to treat that carefully and be sensitive to when people are sharing heavy things to be to also be thoughtful and not reshare that and to take that seriously. One of my favorite ways to work with clients is to help what we call it in psychology, the motivational interviewing. And that's where you ask the question, why? And not just stopping there, but you're really listening. And this is active listening engagement. And then you continue to ask that level why. It's almost like you're peeling back layers of onions. And the more you're asking, why? About five or six times, you start to get the heart of the matter. In fact, uh, to really nerd out on you, motivational interviewing was actually working with addicts, drug addicts, alcohol addiction. And it's found to be show very positive results in change in their behavior. And why is that? Because someone's spending the time to connect with you and understand that you have an addiction. Whereas a lot of times, oh, fix it or stop it or whatever the case. We, we like to should on people, I say a lot. Mm. We like to tell them what they shouldn't do. That doesn't fix people. That doesn't change people. Hearing them, trusting them, and really getting to know them and who they really are, that's where the change comes from because it comes with, from within them. And when they can share that with you, they begin to change themselves. Really, really insightful, Mary. And I remember when I read Motivational Interview and I thought, wow, this is just a fascinating way to communicate. This conversation around change coming within, I think whether we're around our monies or with addiction, we seek this desire to change. And like you said, it can be hard when someone's saying, you should do this, should do that, as opposed to listening. Earlier, I'm going to draw from your book. Early in your book, you have a quote that says, the solution to many people's financial troubles lies within. And this idea of motivational interviewing, listening, and not just telling made me think of this quote. So maybe can you touch on or continue to elaborate on this conversation about changing from within? Why did you put that quote so early in your book? And what significance does this quote have? 
Sure. Let me back up a little bit. My book is specifically written. It's uh, called Anchors, Ostriches, and a Hot Pair of Scissors. And it's specifically written to financial advisors. And that is because we hear a lot of this. We throw around the terms behavioral economics, behavioral finance. And then after researching this and, and reading these books for over a decade, I was like, but no one's written directly to financial planners. Like, how do I take this information as a financial advisor and understand it and how to apply it with my clients? And that was the key for me that I wanted connection with. And so it was really a personal thing that I wanted to understand more about. And along the way, a book came out of that. And so for me, having come from financial advising and been taught in the CFP program, this is how the correct way is, and this is how you should do it, and this is how you should teach people. You hear the shoulds, mm-hmm. right? That's how we're taught. We call ourselves advisors. What do advisors do? They talk a lot and they tell you what you should be doing. And so that was one of the things that I have learned over, gosh, almost 20 years of teaching and working with hundreds of clients that I've started to realize it's not me. It's not a magic thing that I say as the advisor or counselor or coach or therapist that I magically come up with and they say, oh, I've never heard that before. That, why didn't I think of that earlier, right? It really lies within them. And that's where I think it's really important to make that statement. And that's why I put it early on because it's almost taking off our advisor hat and thinking with a completely new brain and a new set of tools. We weren't given this in our, at least 20 years ago, in the CFA curriculum. You were just given the tools to take out the toolbox, fix the problem, and then move on. Whereas now we're starting to identify it's not just, you need some good tools in the toolbox. I absolutely do not discount that. But you also need to understand people. And that's where... This part is so important because as you start to understand the human aspect of this individual and where they're coming from and how they're working through it, they start to really understand themselves better Mm -hmm. because they're sharing with you things that matter to them. And as they start to hear themselves, it's therapy, right? As they start to hear themselves, they start to see solutions to their own problems And so it's solutions that they're coming up with, which by the way, Sean, they're more likely to keep than if we were to say, oh yeah, you should do this. Mm -hmm. (laughs) If they're doing, if they're saying, hey, I want to do this, that means they're engaged. They're ready to do whatever it is, sign a beneficiary form or finish the estate plan or whatever mechanical thing it is, but they're really ready. And that's what's really important to know is when the client is ready the students like, let me tell you, I have one of my favorite professors, Dottie Durbin, of all time, uh, has been a mentor to me. And she said very early on, she said, Mary, when the student is ready, the teacher is willing. And I have thought about that for so long, because for a long time, I wasn't ready to go back to school and get a PhD. I wasn't ready, uh, maybe as a client, I'm not ready to touch that estate plan, or I'm not ready to deal with that investment portfolio yet. But when the student is ready, because we have to come to the table willing and wanting to change, then the teacher is ready. Instead of the vice versa, and a lot of times we're the ones as teachers trying to push it or advice givers, we're trying to push that on them and say, here it is, let's get it done. And then we are like hitting our head trying to say, why didn't they do it? I laid it out for them and they still didn't take my advice because they're not ready yet. And this goes... Uh, to another theoretical model, and that's called stages of change. And within stages of change, there there's five different stages, and I'll save us the whole uh, lecture on that for another day. But essentially, you go through these five different stages before you're ever ready to make a change. And one of the stages, one of the five, is action. And action, we like to think as advisors that all our clients are walking through our door. They're ready to take action. Let's get going. Guess what? Less than 20% of people are in the action phase. And just because they're in the action phase for working out and getting their gym body back, doesn't mean they're also in that same action phase for getting their retirement portfolio together. You can be in different phases in different areas of your life as well. And so keeping that in mind as an advisor or even as a friend, as you're listening to people knowing when you're telling them, just do it this way, just fix it that way, they're not there yet. They're not ready for that action phase yet. So in that contemplation, that pre-contemplation phase, 
what you can do best as a friend or an advisor or spouse is listen and ask questions and strengthen that relationship. So when they are in that action phase, that they're ready to take action, you're there to offer support. And it's their action they're taking. It's not your action that you're telling them to do because they're less likely to. If someone says, hey, go to the gym and lose 20 pounds, you're like, forget that. But if you feel it, you're much more likely to do it. That's so good. In a world that's filled with one size fits all, do this advice. And if you don't, something's wrong with you. I love this conversation because it speaks to the the humanity behind the numbers that we all aren't at the same stage. And while I'm a financial planner and I remember learning about the change theory and I was like, whoa, really less (laughs) than 20 people? And, And just to go to your point about we want to be heard. I think it's so Mm. powerful to go back to that trust that you talked about is when we feel heard, and to use your words, we feel understood. And then that trust is, there's this connection, this human connection. And if we can facilitate that in a money conversation, which already emotionally driven, I think it's such a, just such a good situation to be in that we can feel accepted, even talking about money, which is difficult. And it sounds like you were able to do that with your husband going back in that initial conversation. And it sounds like you've had some great conversations since over the last 10 years. We're still married. Still married. So I'm hoping so. I think they called the seven year mark. That is the, the yeah. we made it. Um, I, and Sean, let me just yeah. add in there too. I think an important point is we, we've heard a lot of advisors worry about all this changing technology and AI and is AI and technology going to take over and get rid of me? And am I going to be obsolete? Guess what? As long as we're human and we're helping other humans, that cannot be replicated. That is your differentiator. Is human to human, relationships aren't necessarily developed with technology. Maybe technology facilitates a relationship, but it doesn't replace the relationship. The, that is unique to human beings. And so knowing and not worrying about, sure, let's use AI. In fact, in the academic world, it's chat GPT, right? What's advancing and how's everyone going to cheat on tests and all the rest? guess what? Utilize that because the human to human cannot be replaced. And that's what you're really building your business on is that connection and the humanity of it. All the rest of the tools in the toolbox, hey, guess what? They might be digitized. Back in my day, we did a a financial plan on a spreadsheet. (laughs) It was a really big spreadsheet. It was ridiculous, but we knew how to use Excel. Guess what? That's long out the window, right? If I had built my business around Excel, (laughs) I'd probably be in trouble in this day and age. But if you're building it around human beings, the more you understand about humans, you learn about how to work with people and how to listen better, how to communicate better, how to ask better questions, you'll never become obsolete. As long as there's human beings around. When we start losing the human beings and there's only aliens left, you might have to go to something else. But (laughs) different world at that point. There you go. I'm hopeful for with AI and what it can do, because I mean, if we look at the statistics, Financial literacy is low. Um, financial outcomes are yeah. low in Canada. Money's continuously reported as top stress in our lives. So hopefully we can forget the spreadsheet, not forget, pay less attention <laughs> to the spreadsheets because more technology can yeah. automate those and focus on the human side. Now, totally. in this conversation about listening to hear, to understand, there's also an element of money advice that we have to at some point also give advice when someone's ready in the action phase and asking for specific advice. So I have a question around all of your different levels of experience. So you have a PhD with, I believe the focus is financial planning and financial therapy. You're Mm -hmm. a CFP and an AFC. So all different Mm -hmm. modes of financial education. Can you maybe just touch on the difference of each of those three? And then my follow-up question is, I'm going back to you and your husband. You guys are different and you don't have to get into specifics of your husband. You're the, the example. But um, you guys have different backgrounds, also probably different needs when it comes to money. And that makes sense because as humans, we're complex and we have many different parts of us with all these different needs. So my question is, do you ever see a world where those three roles are actually integrated so that we don't have these siloed versions of it where it's more seamless, where I can get the benefits of multiple uh, perspective when it comes to money? Yeah, absolutely. 
So let me start off and kind of explain what each Mm -hmm. of those means. And then I really want to talk about this thing called financial therapy, because I think that's where we're heading is this blended world and what that looks like. We'll start with the accredited financial counselor. I was actually in school uh, taking courses from Dottie Durbin, and, and she kept talking about this counseling thing. And I took her class and understood all, oh, by the way, there's this whole swath about spending and credit and debt and call it even college savings and how to pay off student loans that we don't talk about in the CFP world, right? But we have this bell curve. That's what 80% or more of the population is dealing with. And so it's kind of funny that we just all assume, and again, financial planning really is helping a lot of those with a lot of wealth because that's how they're paid, right? That's the model it's built on. But there's a lot of people, and that's where my hope for technology comes in, is how can technology really help a large majority of people that need good financial planning advice? And is there a way to maybe automate some of that while also adding in the human element? So I think there's a lot of hope there. But let's go back to what is financial counseling? It's all the stuff we didn't get on the CFP that that really average everyday people need to know that we're never taught. And so with counseling, I fell in love. I just thought this is who I want to help is it's people who look like me. And that was growing up with My parents kept changing a case of corn and a case of beans. That's reality. That's life. And so with that, it became more of, I want to understand people more. And so the AFC really gives you a good, very broad base of how to connect with individuals, how to work with it. It starts, it, it highlights many of the things we've talked about here because it starts to teach you about relational side of money and how to work with people. And I think the AFC, that's the accredited financial counselor, does a really good job of that. So fast forward, when we talk about CFP or certified financial planner, that really gets into the nuts and bolts of retirement and investments and insurance taxes, I'm estate planning, I'm probably missing one. But those that's really the technical that's building out your toolbox that we were talking before. And you need to know that I think that is critical. If you're working with people, you need to understand all of those tools. I've had individuals come to me and say, well, you know, I'm a financial planner, and you go down to it, and they understand one tool, Mm -hmm. whole life policies. (laughs) That's not broad enough, right? To be able to understand, you need a lot of tools and to understand how those all work together. So that was my second designation, is being able to get that, to be able to broaden that perspective. And then third, for me personally, and I don't think everyone has to go through this, but it became, uh, I just have an interest in learning. I've always loved learning I'm curious. I want to know more. I want to understand more. And this idea around psychology, I was never trained in psychology. I don't come from that background at all. And so Kansas State really piqued me with the financial therapy idea. And I was actually on campus in 2010, (laughs) a few years ago now, for the first financial therapy association conference. It was brand new. First time they had ever held it. And this is the idea of, okay, we've got all the tools, but then how do we utilize theory? from psychology. You know, I kind of chuckle, Sean, because we talk a lot now of, oh, we're breaking edge or we're look at this new thing we've discovered in financial planning. And the psychologists over in the corner, they're laughing at us going, oh my gosh, where have you been for the last hundred years? We've known that forever, right? <laughs> and so that's where this idea of psychology blending with money to really understand that at a deeper level. And that's where financial therapy came in. I'll give you a good example of my own personal experiences, I had worked for the Pentagon for several years, which is very high level, knew some high level tools and things how to help, but I'd never worked with soldiers on the ground. And so that's when I transferred to Manhattan, Kansas, was working on my PhD, but also worked on the military base there. And my role on that military base was what they call as helping soldiers, families of the fallen. So when a soldier died, usually in battle or in combat, they are given about half a million dollars, U.S. dollars, for the compensation. So that's life insurance and death gratuity and things. And that's it. That's all they'll receive at that point. And that, for me, was a real awakening of what it meant of financial and therapy. Because that money is blood money. That money has come with so much emotion because you're now replacing a person that you loved in your life, a son, a brother, a husband, a daughter, whoever that individual was to you, and now you're getting a check for it. 
there were a lot of feelings and they were shown in different ways, right? Some people went out and blew all the money very quickly because they had so much guilt and shame and they just wanted the individual back. Other people didn't even want to touch it and would just shove it away or, or not do anything with it. And that's detrimental as well. And so I think for me, that was my real boots on the ground experience to be able to say, yeah, money is much more than just green stuff that you use to barter and trade with. There's a lot of emotion around money and how we interact with money, regardless of what it looks like, right? You can use any kind of currency or even chickens if you want to barter. It's the emotion behind it and how that implicates in your life. And that for me was where I started to really have this awakening within of, yes, it's great that I have these tools, these counseling tools and these planning tools, but it wasn't until I came together and understood psychology and human behavior better to be able to really understand and say, oh, <laughs> this is how I can work better with clients and work better with, with family, with work better with my spouse and talk about money and have these conversations. Because the other thing, Sean, that I think is really important is these things affect generations. We talk about generational planning and estate planning a lot, but there's also habits and ideas and bad ideas and good ideas that we pass down generationally. I, had a, I helped a family when I was working uh, for the government. I worked with a lot of people with top secret security clearances, and there was a couple whose parent, they were, in, they were at the point, this couple was at the point of declaring bankruptcy. I had found out that both sets of parents, in-laws and both sets of in-laws had declared bankruptcy so many times that one set actually had to move to a third world country to be able to find life again. And this couple was not only heading for bankruptcy, but were in habits that were passing down. This was going to be a repeat offender. They were going to be declaring bankruptcy multiple times throughout their life. And I remember having a really frank conversation with them that said, you are the hinge piece for your future posterity. And if you can learn to change this now, you will change generations that come after you. But if you continue to carry that same generational conflict that has been going on in your family for decades, you will continue to pass that heritage down for generations. And it will affect not just you, but your children and their children and your children's children for generations to come. Putting it in that perspective also gives me a reason to why do we need to do this? Because it matters. Not just matters today, matters for years and generations to come. Yeah, wow. It makes me think of there's so much time spent on legacy planning from the dollars perspectives. And we both know those dollars could be spent very quickly. But if those psychological traits are continuously passed down, the patterns aren't changed as your story suggests. With your experience working in the military and dealing with these very emotionally driven situations, whether it's the fallen soldier or other ones, I'm sure, are filled mm -hmm. with emotions. How did you observe people starting to begin the process of going through that model of change? And when I say from change, mm -hmm. from like actually accepting that, ooh, there's a lot of under emotions, a lot of stories underneath this money. So my question is, what have you observed on when people start to reconcile with all these hidden emotions? Yeah, no, that's a really good question and a very deep question. Uh, it goes back to it depends. It depends mm. on the client. Having helped literally hundreds of clients, specifically in a government setting. So keep in mind, a lot of who I was helping had top secret security clearances. And with that, they have to have their finances in order. If you don't, it puts you on the line. They actually had to come to me as the financial counselor to help them work through it. And I remember early on, you would get people who volunteer and say, hey, look, I need help. And those were also the ones who, by the way, were more action-oriented and ready to make change. So they were a little more easy, I would say. There were others that were told, you have to go see her. If you want to keep your security clearance, mind you, security clearance and job go hand in hand. You lose your security clearance, you lose your job. <laughs> so this wasn't just yeah, I'll go see her. And so I was met with a lot of resistance. The, the arms crossed, the pushing back in the chair, like they flat out didn't want to be there. And I don't blame them. Someone should on them and told them you have to go do this or you lose your job, right? You lose your clearance. You don't work with that. I learned really quickly, I could do nothing as that counselor if they didn't want to be there. And so it was a total waste of time. And 
I, what do they call, leaned into that. And the way I would handle that is when I saw that resistant pushback body behavior, I would look straight at them and say, I can tell you don't want to be here today. And they're like, no, mm -hmm. I have nothing to do, nothing to tell you, nothing to share. And I said, you're right, totally fair. And I get this is not something you want to do. And I will tell you now, you are welcome to walk out that door. You, I'm not going to make you stay here. I do have to report it back to your security officer and let them know this is how it ended. But I will not push. I'm not going to force and I'm not going to challenge. And it was amazing when we started to have, and I gave them permission with an open door to walk out. When I gave them that permission, the relationship totally changed. Most of the time. I, I'm not going to pretend that it was a, a magic wand mm -hmm. <laughs> that cured everything. But it gave them autonomy. It gave them some control in this situation, which they had felt all of that control had been zapped out. And so I think that was a really important lesson for me is help understanding even people who maybe know nothing about money or have made really poor decisions, they still want control. They still, that is theirs. And it's there. The other part that I think is really important to understand is they are allowed to not only make mistakes, but then we have to not coddle. We have to allow that consequence, whatever the consequence may be. And this expands obviously far beyond money and going back to raising kids. As we back up, my mom said this once. She said, you need to let, it was a situation. And I was having a really hard time letting this person go. And he, she said, you need to let him fall face first and hit his face and it, that it hurt. And if you continue to catch him and coddle him and always jump in to fix the problem, he never has that life lesson and the consequence of those actions. And so he'll continue that behavior ongoing. And so for me, that was a really visual image. And I needed to let these people make that decision. And if they wanted to hit the sidewalk face first and get banged up and scraped up and really hurt, guess what? I needed to get out of the way, not go try to save the day and fix the problem. We are fixers. We are a nation of fixers. In fact, it probably goes into Canada. I don't oh, know yeah. if you guys have the fixer problem up there. Yeah, we sure do. <laughs> That's a problem, right? And so as we back out and let consequences happen, then people come back and would say, hey, I'm ready. And it sometimes takes really crappy, hard situations for them to be ready. And I encourage, I remember several times parents co-signing for children or pulling out the retirement funds to pay for the kids' education and the kids went and blew it. I mean, we've all got these stories. And I would just sit back and say, stop it. Let the kid have those experiences. Allow them to have that consequence and be there as supportive, but not always the financial supportive. Maybe it's a different way of listening and hearing. And that's really important, I think, as a, a parent, as a therapist, as a coach, a counselor, a planner, is that you're there to help, but you're not there to coddle. You're, I, I could not carry these people through this counseling process. And I did have, I will tell you, there's something called internal external locus of control. I studied it in my PhD and it was really interesting. One of the things that I learned though, is people with an external locus of control, let me back up and explain what that means really quick. Internal locus of control means I can own a situation, but I also accept the consequences of it. it and most people, in fact, in the military population, I the research I did showed about 75% of my population was internally motivated, which was really interesting mm -hmm. to me, by the mm -hmm. way. Because in a military world, you're told what time yeah. to get up, what time to go to bed, where to eat, what to wear. Like they were told everything. So I was thinking it would be very externally motivated. Not at all. Very internal. In fact, somebody told me when I was giving a presentation once, they said, of course, we're training to be leaders. And to be leaders, you have to have this internal locus of control. Okay, so fast forward, that's what internal locus of control is. You switch over to external, and we all know these people. <laughs> it was, it's not my fault. Mm -hmm. It's someone else's fault. This didn't happen. Like, how did you, I had a client one time racked up $60,000 of easy pass charges. And what easy pass charges are toll charges on a freeway of going through. I don't know how you get to $60,000 of toll charges. I, I just don't know how you do it. And the more questions I asked, the more I found out it wasn't their fault. It was never their fault. I don't know who was driving the car because it supposedly it wasn't their fault. And so it was just a really interesting conversation. At the end of the day, I was like, how do you help that? 
And so I learned with clients with an external loss of control that were always trying to put the blame elsewhere. That was really hard. And that's when I had to really engage myself to pull back and see where that person was willing to start shaping and making change. And that's what I would focus on rather than me trying to dominate and saying, here's what you need to change. Here's what you need to do. It was allowing that person. And, and if you can do it with extra local control, you got it. Like if you can do it with those clients, you can do it with anyone. Because those were the hardest for me when they were always blaming someone else because they never took ownership of it. And so that to me, and there are plenty of stories, Sean. I, I want to be careful here because I think sometimes we made these magic wands and say, if you just use this magic technique, any therapist out there will tell you there's no magic technique. It takes a lot of tools in that toolbox to pull out at the right time with the right client in the right situation. And that's where this ongoing learning and uncovering and discovering, I love that you're reading these things and understanding them because your toolbox is expanding. And so when you have different clients come through with different needs, different challenges, different emotions, you're able to really synchronize that with their needs. And I'm not a big believer in the big stand-up Everyone needs to do it this way. There is a reason it's called personal financial planning because it's a personal thing and your situation looks different than my situation that looks different than somebody else's. You really just encapsulated such a good depiction of this humanistic approach to money. And I, I just think it was really interesting how you explained how you deal with the external or internal locus of control. But it really sounded like you're meeting them where they're at, or you're listening to hear where their life is currently at and not forcing them to go where you think they should be going. And it's also interesting, this idea of failing or natural consequences, we call them to our kids. And my son's yep. so sick of that, but uh, he takes a lot of them. But um, around the financial planning side, when you're allowing them to fail and not enabling them, I think it's also helped building this the sense of agency that they're like, okay, wait, she's not going to do it for me. My spouse isn't going to do it for me. I'm failing, so I want to now figure out how to change. And it, it's got to come from me, which I think are really good lessons for people to start to become more financially confident and resilient as they progress through this ever-long relationship with money. Yeah. Um, yeah. I have one last question and then a final question I ask everybody. So all this to say is we're really trying to approach the financial conversations from a side that people feel heard and understood. And in a world that is dominated by short videos on social media, TikTok, <laughs> et cetera, there's a plethora of information out there that who knows where it's coming from. You have started the Financial Behavioral Keynote Group. I want to touch on why you chose the tagline of where evidence meets experience. I'm very impressed that you got the tagline. You're one of the few people that have ever quoted the tagline to me. Uh, so thank you. It's such a good one. Thank you. Having come out of academia and been there for a, a while, I started to realize there's a lot of great things in academia. There are incredible wealth of knowledge. But a lot of times what happens is academics talk to academics and in academic speak. And it doesn't translate well all the time to consumers or to practitioners or other audiences. So I remember being on a, a conference with an academic conference, ironically enough, about policy change, financial policy change. And we were sitting across the street from the U.S. Senate. And the U.S. Senate are the po people that make policy, right? And I remember being in a dark hotel in the basement, sitting across the street going, why are we here with 100 people in this dark room? when everything we have to say really affects the people literally across the street. And I left. I couldn't take it anymore. I walked across the street. I was like, I'm going to make connections across <laughs> the, on the hill because that's where the change is taking place. And so that, that's, for me, that's kind of my purview sometimes in academia is we stay very true to academia, but it doesn't penetrate out. So how do we take the knowledge base that exists in academia? And then let me switch over to practice. On the practice side, we talk all the time of that's Bob's best idea. And Bob gets up there and tells everyone his best idea, but it's not based on anything except Bob's one-off anecdotal experience. <laughs> but we make it sound like, yes, that's what you should do. And I'm not just hashing practice there. There are plenty of, what should I call them, main stage, nationally, worldwide known 
financial planners that tell you what to do with your money, guess what? That's their best idea. And they're saying it to 10 million people. It doesn't fit for 10 million people. And so that was a problem as well, because it's not rooted in evidence. And so my dream is to bring these two worlds together to say, hey, we need academia. If we're going to be a profession like doctors, like lawyers, like accountants, like all the ones we like to compare ourselves to, guess what they started with or what they're rooted in? They're rooted in academics. You don't want any brain surgeon or heart surgeon or even your primary care working on you without knowing the research, right? That's why you pay them the big bucks. They need to know the research and have evidence base to open you up and do the work. Same thing for financial planning. We should not be doing this based off best practices. We should be doing this based off of real research, real evidence that has been tried and tested and proven in labs to say, yes, this works, scientific evidence. And so that's where this idea comes together. Now, I've really hit hard on the academic side. Let me switch over to practice because on the practice side, there's a lot of knowledge. In fact, my dad would call it. I remember when I asked my dad one time, I said, how'd you learn all this financial stuff? He said, oh, honey, it's called the school of hard knocks. (laughs) Well, guess what? There is learning in the school of hard knocks too. You don't just have to go to an academic institution to get that. You can learn it from natural consequences, right? And so there are good things that come out of practice. And the other thing is, is if you're a practitioner, you understand how to talk to people. You understand how to talk to clients because you do it. Not always true in the Ivy Tower, right? And so that's what I'm bringing together is academics and practitioners that use evidence-based research to share ideas, to share best practices, to share, excuse me, rooted in evidence, not best practices, but rooted in evidence to be able to say, hey, this is really what matters and really elevate the whole profession. Because as we elevate the profession together, that's where the greatest change takes place. And that's where we can stand on solid ground and say, yes, we are taking the best of the best from all worlds. And we're using it to be able to communicate it through individuals who are good speakers, who are good teachers, who understand how to take different words that we use in both sides and talk to a very normal audience, an everyday person. And if you can break it down, it's like when you teach your kids, if you can break it down and teach your children a concept, you get that concept because you understand it at its elementary rudimentary level. And that's imperative. So we need to be able to explain all the fancy stuff that we talk about, the 401ks, 503bs, 529s, you name it and explain it in very normal terms so everyone can understand it. And that means we're advancing it together and not just using it for the few elite that understand these archaic, or I should say archaic, but very unique words that we use in our world. Mary, throughout the whole conversation, I have felt your level of um, passion. But that last segment there, I could feel it like radiating (laughs) through the camera all the way up here in Edmonton, Canada. And I appreciate it so much. And as someone who has spent so many, so much of my time at conferences, listening to Bob talk about his best practices and me like diligently as young advisor, writing it down and running to my office to try to implement it. It really wasn't until I started taking a master's where I was exposed to research and what the concept of evidence-based research actually is. And I'm just so appreciative that you're putting these two expertise together and really focusing on this implementation of the academic knowledge into everybody's, hopefully to every, not everybody, that's too much, but allowing people to access it. So I think what you're doing is fantastic. Thank you, Sean. And let me clarify too, because sometimes um, I want to be really clear about what we do. So at Financial Behavior Keynote, we do have speakers that'll get on stage, amazing, be dynamite. So if you're hosting an event or want a client event, definitely reach out to us. We also offer consulting because it's one thing to hear a speaker say something. You're like, I really resonate with that. But then there's the implementation side of it. And that's what the consulting side does is we really help you implement this into everyday practice. Guess what? A lot of those things cost a lot of money and not every planner and not every person has access to it. So the third tier we do is what we're calling teaching or continuing education. And that is web-based virtual sessions with incredible thought leaders that are maybe challenging your 
point of view or maybe giving you a new point of view to look from and you're hearing from these experts and it's a much lower price level that you can come take classes, learn. You don't have to enroll in school. You can come and learn from us as we are teaching and showing you how to implement these things and use this evidence-based practice. So those are the three pillars, the speaking, I call it speaking, teaching, and consulting. And for a lot of you, we welcome you. Come on. In fact, Sean, we'll get you a discount code for your listeners uh, that want to come on the teaching side and, and hear what these experts are saying. And it has been an incredible journey to see the expertise that has come into this group. I have almost 20 right now of these different teachers with phenomenal backgrounds and so diverse. And they're going to talk about everything under the sun from DEI to investments to portfolio management to empathy, financial empathy. I mean, just so many different topics. So I think you'll really find and your listeners will find there's a really unique world to explore here. And if you want to learn more, we'll definitely get you connected with that. Yeah, that'd be great. Appreciate that. Is that Dr. Thompson on empathy? Oh, yeah. Yes. You know, yeah, Michael Thomas. He's been on yes. here a couple times. And, yeah, he's fabulous. I think it's just so wonderful because we've all been to these presentations where we're feeling raw, inspired. And then um, we might go up and get a little autograph from the speaker. And then we go to our hotel rooms, have a drink, and then tomorrow it's all gone. And I think this <laughs> yep. implementation is really important. I, when I was talking to Ted Klontz one time on the podcast, I can't remember the number, but it, it was around the idea of action oriented in the trans theoretical model of change, but the participants in a presentation, I think it was like, sorry, I can't remember the number. It was low, like five or 3% are actually going to implement that information. So what you're doing is wonderful is that you have these follow-up measures to help people just take a breath and really implement the information. So wonderful. I feel like I go and talk to you for the entire day, but Life goes on. Me too. <laughs> um, my final question is, you can answer this as quickly as you need to, but I've asked everybody, so I got to continue this. Let's imagine you're at end of life and you're sitting on a front porch looking out at something that brings you complete peace and ease. And you decide to bring out a notebook and write a letter to your children's children on what you learned is key to have a happy and healthy relationship with money. What would be a theme to that letter? This goes into a whole different area that I am currently working on. I'm starting a new course for University of Georgia, and it's going to be in South Africa. And the course is called Finding Peace, Conflict, Forgiveness, and Reconciliation. So I hope that my life's work extends far beyond money. I hope it gets into things like conflict. We all deal with conflict at an individual, community, society, worldwide level. And we're seeing that every day. But the other two components of that is forgiveness and reconciliation. And those will never go away. As long as humans exist, we will always have the need for forgiveness. We will always have a need to reconcile. And those are two different things, by the way. They're not one and the same. And so this is my journey right now is how do I help people find peace through going through conflict, working through forgiveness and reconciliation. And it's a journey. It's not a destination. You don't ever arrive. One of the books that I'm reading and working with right now is Desmond Tutu's book, The Book of Forgiveness. And he talks about really hard things, people forgiving murder, people forgiving rape and incest and horrific human parts of life and how they have forgiven, truly forgiven and reconciled that. I, as I read through that book, as I go to South Africa, as I experience the trauma and the tragedies that many of these people have gone through and dealt with and are dealing with, it's not something that was in the past. It continues to this day. For me, it helps me learn from them, not go in there and fix all their problems or teach them what to do. But for me, it's a breath of fresh air that I go back and I say, I, I learned to be more grateful. I learned to give thanks. I learned to forgive more. If I, if someone can forgive murder, I think I can forgive someone who said something mean to me, right? And those are the things that I'm hoping to pass on to my children. It's not just, are you smart with money? Great. That's a good job. But really the deeper level stuff of how do you really build those relationships? Relationships matter. And in order to have relationships, we're human. We bump into each other. We hurt each other. Forgiveness, 
reconciliation are a vital component to being human. And so those are the things I hope to pass down for my generational uh, heritage is being able to teach them how to be human and forgive. Wow, that is fantastic. I just want to make a comment that I appreciate the lens that you have when you're going to wherever, South Africa, or I, I believe you've even been to Northern Ireland to do some of this conflict mm -hmm. work. But this idea yeah. of reciprocity I hear is that you're learning from them and um, they're learning from you in a mutual exchange as opposed to, I think sometimes we get this idea that we teach. So I just want to make that comment that I think it's a good lens to have. So thank you so much. My other comment is at the top, you talked about how on that second date, you really were the money focused person. And then you started listening to your <laughs> husband and he was more about gift of time and the more sensitive or sensitive side. Your last comment sounds like he's been, he's been <laughs> rubbing off on you. <laughs> I guess married to a therapist for a decade yeah. has started to teach me a few things too yeah. of what really matters and maybe what didn't matter yeah. quite so much. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time. For listeners who yeah. want to find more about you, where would you point them to on the internet or wherever? Yeah, you can find us at keynote.financial is our homepage. If you want to reach out to me directly, I'm on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram. Oh my goodness, how many other social media components? And I'll make sure I include those for you, Sean, to include in the show notes. But yeah, I'd love to hear from you and reach out and let us know what's on your mind. Thank you so much for joining. I really appreciate it. Thank you for joining me this week. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Dr. Carlson as much as I did. Please head over to the show notes at www.themosthatedfword.com to see all the links that Mary has provided us. And if you're still listening, perhaps you enjoyed this episode. If you did, can you please head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review for the show? It really lets us know that you're enjoying the content. Until next week, have yourself a good one. I'm on a mountain without a top. My wealth is measured and now I spend my time. Now I write a freedom story with every breath inhaled. Money is not the boat of life, it's just the wind in the sea.